Hey everyone, I have a bit of an essay to slap on to the intro of this episode, so here I go. Alright, so first of all, pretty crazy world out there at the moment, obviously, and my most recent episode with the international law scholar Tara Lundstedt is unfortunately very relevant. As of this writing and recording, right now, Ukraine is drafting a plea to the ICJ, that's the International Court of Justice in The Hague, the legal body of the United Nations regarding the Russian invasion. If the very murky and interesting world of international law and the legal theories and semi-codified norms that guide it are of interest to you, then please do listen to that previous episode and keep an eye on the language used at the ICJ in that proceeding. Earlier this week, the UN Security Council failed to pass a condemnation on Russia's actions because Russia holds a permanent seat on that council and therefore could veto the action all by itself. It's also not necessary for Russia to show up at the ICJ. That's a voluntary court appearance, so I wouldn't expect them to. But the court can issue an advisory opinion regardless. I think the United Nations teeters on the edge of irrelevancy. Some may celebrate that downfall, but I contend that we will all miss it quite badly, and it will necessarily have to reinvent itself out of the rubble under some new name of whatever horrors explode during its concomitant collapse. In the meantime, let's all hope this mess works out in favor of peace. It does seem to be a kind of hostage dilemma where a madman has nuclear weapons, and we're all in a sadistic game of chicken right now. I also have a more general comment here to make about America's standing in the world. I really don't mean to distract from the particular strife at hand in Russia and Ukraine and exhibit the usual American habit of making everything about us, but I can't resist somewhat harsh criticism of the current state of dialogue on a few matters. So at the risk of making some enemies, hear me out. I think I've finally grasped the best understanding of Trump derangement syndrome over the past few months. There are a lot of people out there who are fretting, rightfully, I would say, about the state of democracy and its future. But this worry can take on a distinct flavor and a hyper-focus on the problem of Trump and Trumpism in America and the obviously concerning 2024 election which looms in our future and has no guarantees of earning the sacred trust of being considered free and fair by most of the voters. This is clearly a problem within democracy, and we should talk about it, of course, but America does not equal democracy. America does not own democracy. America did not even invent democracy. But of course, America has been and still is rather important to its future. So if we zoom out of the local focus, the Trump issue in the American election sanctity shifts somewhere to the state of an obvious symptom of a much bigger and deeper problem rather than a cause. So let me be more specific. There are many binary terms being offered to forecast what the seemingly inevitable new Cold War will be. Democracy versus autocracy, freedom versus fascism, freedom versus dictatorship. Another that is now very present is something like the rule of law versus the rule of the strongest or the craziest bully in the room. So here is what concerns me. It's no big secret that China, which also has a permanent seat on the Security Council, has its eyes on Taiwan. It doesn't take Einstein to understand that the same flimsy legal arguments that Russia used to justify invasion in Ukraine are the same ones that China might be using sometime soon themselves. China abstained in the vote to condemn the action, just as they abstained when a similar vote came up years earlier regarding Russia's actions in Crimea. 
India also abstained on the vote, perhaps because they kind of liked the sound of the legal arguments and think they could come in handy regarding Kashmir one day. Who knows? The UAE also abstained, likely just wanting to remain neutral business partners in the world and keep their heads down. I don't know. It's nice in a way that these countries wish not to appear hypocritical in the future if they condemn the current action and then repeat the arguments in the name of their own atrocities. That's a subtle reminder that international reputation is still a currency that matters a little bit on some level internationally. But of course, the United States loudly and forcefully condemned the invasion, frequently citing the false pretenses and propaganda which was used to justify the invasion of a sovereign nation. I lost count of how many times Russia brought up Colin Powell's infamous speech at the UN when he waved a vial of white stuff around and talked about anthrax and his rock-solid intelligence, which claimed Iraq had weapons of mass destruction that were all used to justify the U.S.'s invasion and regime change operations in Iraq after 9-11 and our blind, hopeless efforts in Afghanistan. Now, you can easily point out the false moral equivalence here of Saddam Hussein's regime and the Taliban and Ukraine. And of course, that ought to matter as well. But that is not the legal case that was being made to justify the invasion. It was not about a moral crusade to liberate the people of Iraq from a brutal dictator. It could have been, and in fact, should have been. It may not have worked. There certainly is no easy legal international case to be made for such actions. And it could have also failed to garner support, even less than the pathetically small coalition of the willing that joined our post-9-11 carnival of errors in the Middle East. And if it had failed to garner support using the international legal mechanisms, then what? Would we still go ahead unilaterally? Okay, let me just take a breath here. America is not Russia and does not operate like Russia. But Russia and Putin are the master trolls of the world who never miss an opportunity to bring up the points I'm making here to remind America that our moral standing to lecture about the rule of law and international norms is standing on very wobbly legs. We should be outraged and horrified by Russia's actions. This stuff is no joke, and it is beyond frightening that all of the dominoes that I imagined in the previous episode that lead to a global spread of violence are more imaginable today than they were yesterday. But we should also be horrified and outraged at the position which our country, I'm speaking as an American here, is placed in where a troll like Putin can point to our hypocrisy and forecast to China, India, and whoever else may be licking their chops at how hollow our words and threats can sound. It was clear to everyone that 9-11 was a resounding test for America and global democracy. The manipulations, the rhetoric, the lies, and the false pretenses that were being sold to justify the invasion of Iraq led to the largest global anti-war protests that the world had ever seen. I was a part of them. I can't help feeling defeated and wounded now 21 years later at the position which my leadership at the time and the people around them writing their speeches, crafting their policies, and pushing their agendas has put me in as an American today. or perhaps more sharply, the positions that they have put Russia and China in to troll their way to a new Cold War. Trump and Trumpism is part of that fallout, not its cause. To confuse the two or look too closely at the symptom without genuine reflection on the greater picture is a kind of Trump derangement syndrome that I understand. 
Unfortunately, the mountain to climb to restore a kind of democracy which upholds a global rule of law is a much higher peak to reach than what kind of mess we are in now. This doesn't need to be some sort of self-flagellation or silencing of our American voices in order to pay for the crimes of previous administrations, but it should be a moment of serious reflection about the cost of such blunders and failures. We are not Russia. My best defense is to announce that those errors were real and consequential, and our system of governance allows us to examine them, criticize them, choose new leaders, and point our actions to be more closely aligned to our ideals. Of course, that process of the error-correcting mechanism of elections is something to defend. It is our salvation from eternal hypocrisy in this conversation. We must keep it and protect it. But there is no need to forget the mistakes, to pretend we can just walk away from them without cost or burden. There's no need to champion the names and stances of the crafters of those democracy-darkening leaders simply because they can recognize the emergency of Donald Trump. Whew. Okay. So this is probably relevant because this is a conversation about conversations, and in particular, it's a conversation about speaking across partisan political divides. It's with Monica Guzman, who is the head storyteller for Braver Angels. It's no accident that she's the head storyteller. She's a tremendously gifted storyteller and speaker, as you'll soon hear. Braver Angels is an organization dedicated to bridging the partisan divide in America. Her book is titled, I Never Thought of It That Way, and its target audience is those of us who have strained or severed relationships with people close to us because of the increasingly widening partisan gap in our politics and in our lives. Like me, she is convinced that we are not nearly as divided as people assume, that we both move in different directions to find common ground. The conversation gets into the challenge of social media, the keys to finding common ground through curiosity, if there are certain lines and positions too vile to really see in another way, and much more. And oh, I probably broke a bit of a promise in it, and I mentioned Dave Rubin by name, Hopefully, I did so with some level of charity. I think the conversation speaks for itself, and I end up doing plenty of the talking. It's a pretty freewheeling conversation back and forth. So I'll go ahead and cut myself off now. And here you go, an episode I'm calling Thinking of It That Way, featuring Monica Guzman. Enjoy. So your one of the things you emphasize in your book and in your TED Talk is like, straight to my heart, which is this emphasis on curiosity and curiosity being this key um, to uh, overcoming our partisan divides or just sort of navigating life in general and the power of curiosity. And you frame it in a way that listeners uh, of my show will be happy with that the enemy of curiosity is certainty. Can you just give me sort of your pitch? I know it's a softball, but give me your pitch on curiosity because you're such a wonderful advocate for the the principle of curiosity. So curiosity works on us when there is a gap between what we know and what we want to know. And if you've, you know, ever been like at a bar with friends and somebody's like, the guy in that movie, you know, the guy in that movie. <laughs> and then everybody's like, oh, you know, and finally someone pulls out their phone and looks it up. That's that's the gap in curiosity, the thing that people don't know and what it what the impulse that then everyone has to follow to find out. So curiosity is this incredible drive. But the 
the the the the catch with curiosity is your your attention has to be on that gap on that gap in your knowledge it's not like hunger or thirst where once you have food once you drink something you're no longer thirsty with curiosity as soon as you stop putting attention on the gap curiosity's gone and the pull to learn is gone and so certainty is the arch villain of curiosity because if you think you know you won't think to ask. You will cover up the gap. And it may not actually be true that you have finished learning what you ought to learn. But so long as you believe that you are certain and you have a certain level of that, uh, then that's it. Kills curiosity. You move on and maybe you shouldn't have. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, for me, the endeavor of diving deep into philosophy, both classical and contemporary is just, uh, you know, a, a, a constant villain of certainty because it's, 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 I don't want to bring in Descartes this early into it, but it's not that it's, it's not that hard to make everything uncertain, right? Like everything might be a dream within a dream. And, and whenever I find anybody on any sort of political sphere or philosophical stance, that's certain of it, I'm, you know, my red flags immediately go up. Um, but your book and your effort, yeah, it's just so full of all of these techniques and, and to start cracking that. But I want, I want to start with this, because I think actually I watched your one of your roundtables with Braver Angels, which we're certainly going to talk about. Um, and it was three women on the panel. It was you. And I, I'm sorry, I'm going to forget the name, Liz. And I think there was, an, there was oh, a Oh, it was four of us, four. probably about abortion. Yeah. Uh, there was that one. Yeah, there was a oh, couple. Oh, we're going to do the one OK. Yeah. Um, and, and you three women on the panel all have very, very different sort of um, stances on, on a sort of philosophical, political map. Mm-hmm. And, and so, you know, not to make it too trite, but if the effort of your book and of Braver Angels in some ways is, you know, finding common ground where you were so certain there was none, um, there's, I almost imagine sort of two directions to go. If we find ourselves at a dinner table with someone and we've, we immediately feel like, oh, there's no common ground here. We're, we're so far apart. You could go sort of on the, the surface level, not in a disparaging way, but almost you can go up in sort of the superficial level and find these things of like, oh, we like the same band or, mm. it, you know, and, and this works, right? It's sort of a hack. In fact, to start your conversation that was going to be contentious in one of those, you started with sort of like, what's your favorite Thanksgiving, you know, meal? And it's great. Like, I, like a couple of you said mashed potatoes and it's like, oh, look, like we disagree about abortion but we both like mashed potatoes isn't that something and and it's yeah. cool it's a nice human way to like remind and we're gonna you know it reminds everybody that we're all human um but there's another way to go which i which i tend to go deeper which is like there is common ground and i did an episode with um, someone who couldn't be further from me on abortion on sort of the outcome there's a way to also go deeper into sort of the existential crisis of being where common ground you know i'm i'm keep banging the same drum you do that we're not nearly as divided as everyone thinks we are or the media keeps telling we are but I tend to go down in the direction of no let's get really into it not into the issue but into what why you think that way and we're totally going to find if we're honest with ourselves the same big things deep things fear of death and the existential crisis of being does God really exist and what's the meaning of life so I don't know, I, my question there sort of is like, which direction, how do you navigate that balance beam? Sometimes it feels when you go towards sort of the surface level stuff, are we avoiding ever getting to the deeper stuff? Mm. Oh, that's an excellent question. I, I really like that distinction, a sense of sort of 
going up, you know, staying very surface level, but finding a, a certain kind of commonality and then going down where you're actually getting deeper into the issue. I think it makes a lot of sense. What, what I would say is, is this, I don't believe that going up to the surface level is a distraction mm. from going deeper. I think it gives people a certain kind of psychological permission to do it. And the reason is because I think we just have to be honest about the fact that across big divides, there's so much distrust and so much fear and trepidation and hesitation, <laughs> whether people show it or not, that even something that seems as superficial as, oh, both like mashed potatoes for mm -hmm. Thanksgiving dinner, that's great. <laughs> it's, it, it, even if it releases a laugh, right? A, a, a bit of a shared smile, any of that kind of emotional synchronicity um, across these big divides where stuff's really tricky, that is going to be what allows people to even continue uh, where there's even a chance that that might go deeper. Because that's ultimately the difference between the two modes you're talking about. One is extremely easy to achieve mm. um, with anyone, and the other is not. Uh, but unless you achieve the first, it's just going to be a lot harder to be like, hey, you, stranger, let's sit down and talk about abortion yeah, yeah. without getting to know each other at all or saying anything. I mean, it's just okay, we can try it, but boy, do people have to be like really bought in. And even if you are really bought in psychologically, it's just tricky if you haven't built a little glue with the other person. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess icebreaker is the colloquial term we have for these things. And so like, so let's talk about that ice. Cause that's so much of what your book and your, your work is about. Like, um, what is what constitutes that ice that we need to break if i buy into sort of your like find find the superficial commonalities at least to start to get a smile to get a laugh to humanize the other person and then let's see if we can find the paths really to get into sort of you know why why our outcomes of who we voted for seem so drastically different um what is that ice how does it form obviously there's things like social media that seem to be very cold places that are freezing <laughs> more and more. Um, but let's get into the, those analogies of like, how have we gotten to, into this place where we've, we've, the ice breaking seems like you need a, a jackhammer to even start. Now. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've mixed a lot of weird metaphors. Hey, there, you but, really yeah. have, but it's, it's fun. <laughs> I look like, you know, you gotta like take the shovel and it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think that the ice is this buildup over time of layers and layers of misperceptions across divides that are not getting corrected. Um, I, I also think of the reality distortion fields mm -hmm. that we're surrounded by as a result of being so polarized. Uh, and it makes us think it's like a it's like a funhouse. It, it, it's the analogy of the funhouse mirror. You know, you walk through and you look, you look and you think you see the other side and it's this monstrous perverted form. But all this social science research is, is showing us that when you ask folks on one side, you know, what the other side believes, they they assume uh, a, a far bigger popularity of very extreme beliefs than is actual. Uh, so it goes back to the point you were saying, we're just not as divided as we think. We're just not. But uh, but the more that we, you know, take that ice, <laughs> that division as a reason not to approach each other, the worst it's going to get because those layers of misperception will just continue to build and compound and compound and it gets worse. So in I Never Thought of It That Way, my book, I talk about these three, th these three sort of aspects of human nature um, that are really beautiful, but are combining into this 
thing that that is making this ice thicker and that is um sorting othering and siloing the the, the sos the call for help um and so sorting we know <laughs> is happening there was just a story very recently about how much it's accelerated that people are you know red states are getting redder blue states mm -hmm. are getting bluer um people are being very open uh, about the fact that they're moving where they believe that their politics are more welcome uh and that has consequences for our opinions and how they might become more extreme. And then we move to othering and othering is the distance that we naturally put between ourselves and whoever we believe is different. Um, it's a very you know, built in thing, uh, social evolution. I mean, humans have survived by forming tribes. This is, this is what we do, uh, but it can really come back to bite us uh, when it leads to all these misperceptions that, that uh, result in us being quite blind about our world. And then we have siloing and siloing is the stories we tell each other as a result of sorting and othering. And we tell each other these stories, of course, you know, mediated by technology and our devices surrounding ourselves. We know this voices that reflect our own, that amplify our own perspectives. And over time, we go deeper and deeper and deeper into this hole <laughs> and, and, and the, the, the perspectives heard generously from other communities become distorted beyond recognition. And, and that's where we're at. And that's why I feel I had to write the book. Yeah. It's just, we're so divided, we're blinded. And so that means everything we try to do to fix stuff is, is based on this, uh, on this assumption about who's around us that is not true. And until we learn how to talk with each other instead of just about each other, I don't think we're going to fix it. Yeah. I um I want to share a, sh a short just like I'm so in the last episode I I mentioned this one and I pitched it and I basically said like it's always good to my, my quick pitch is like you know she's there concerned about the partisan divide and how to fix it and and I was like it's always good to talk to someone who's trying to climb that mountain because it's a mountain it's huge and I want I want to I want to zero in on this siloing thing I love in your book the emphasis on psychology kind of. Uh, preceding philosophy in a lot of ways, or it's not necessarily about the position you're arguing. If correct me if I'm wrong, your, your take on it, and I really like this. It's the psychology um, and maybe temperament almost of, of of why you ended up having this position. It's mm -hmm. kind it's kind of really where we need to start talking about things. Um, and this sure. notion of siloing. The reason that I sort of gave that strange little little thing is I quit social media. I left it, I don't even know how many months ago. I, I quit Twitter. I used to be a very active user. I would get involved in a lot of stuff and I felt terrible like everyone involved in it and I quit it and, you know, it's not, I think it's revealing and not an accident that everybody reached out with a congratulations. You know, you know it's like it's a universal kind of like good. Totally. Like I'm sober or something. Um, but but the 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 analogy of an echo chamber, which which you brought in there, I was feeling. I certainly get it. I'm not de, I'm not going to deny that siloing and echo chambers amplify the ideas you have and and reify them and all this kind of stuff. But I actually think it's the wrong analogy, at least for what I was mm. feeling. If if echo chambers and siloing, if being in your own silo and just hearing opinions that you agree with, um, is all that's sort of needed to make that machine work then Gab and all these other like social media sites, they all fail because I, I, I'm convinced the the better analogy, and I've been meaning to write this essay for a while and I just haven't done it, maybe I could just do it out loud here, is the better analogy is a glass cylinder 
rather than sort of like an echo. When I picture an echo chamber, I'm picturing something very dark and like a cavern. But a glass cylinder is why Twitter is so toxic and works because you know it's, you're going to hear your own opinions bounce back to you even in a glass cylinder, but you know everybody else can see it. And the whole idea and the whole game that everyone has in the back of their mind is let's say this loud enough and if I go viral within, it's going to seep out of our own little gas, glass cylinder and that you know liberal maniac over there on the left is going to see it or that right winger is going to see it and it's going to piss them off. You know, it's, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it taps into our, and you write about this in the us-them distinction, it taps into our almost vindictiveness and... Um, very cynically are are not so genuine discourse on social media because we're not ever just talking to ourselves or even our own chamber we're talking to the people we know might see it and that's the whole goal of twitter and social media and i and i hated it i noticed it in myself um I, i was part of that game and that's why i left it so i say all that almost as a premise of of like do you think we as users and nodes in the system that seems so powerful and has hijacked our psychology can can really fight against it and turn around turn it around from from within it um i started just getting a lot of sympathy for myself and for everyone else who was caught up in this game of like we can't fight this i just have to leave it and that was that was my best thing but you're in it and you're fighting the fight and that's why i said i'm like i'm glad you're in there trying to like figure it out from within it but you know, I'm sorry to be the pessimist in the room of being like, you're up against like a trillion dollar industry and the system that, that just, um, I don't know, it, it helped me out of my cynicism there that, it, that, you can, that you could fix it from within it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, first of all, I think, I think you're right. I think the glass cylinder analogy adds a lot of, of good stuff uh, to the idea of siloing because, and I, and I talk about this a lot when, when you're, when our conversations are not contained to the people having the conversations they will be performances as well as exchanges to actually try to learn something from each other and um you know the the less contained the conversation the more it's purely performance and we we do this to each other all the time and the psychology of that on social media is is like staggering (laughs) and it's uh it, it is absolutely staggering so i'll tell you and i several years ago I didn't get off Twitter, but I but I really sort of stopped using it. Mm-hmm. And then as I was thinking of writing the book again, and I think once I'd started writing it, I just thought, I got to get back into Twitter again, man. <laughs> and, and it was so scary in my head. I, I, was, I was petrified, precisely for the reasons you say. I'm going to get back into doing all this stuff and, and, and the ego and the vanity of it all. It's going to suck. And, uh, and I was petrified in the beginning. But... My answer to your question, can can we actually work it on that in that system from the inside is is a resolute yes, absolutely. But I, I think it's going to take I think it's going to take not rooting ourselves in that space, in those spaces on social media, but rooting ourselves just somewhere else. Mm-hmm in ourselves and then coming in and saying, all right, I've got an opinion. Cool. I see that people are sharing their opinions in extraordinarily unproductive and stupid ways. Okay. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to, I'm going to do it this way. Now, what, what gives me hope on, on this is I see people do it all the time. Like, like everything else, these spaces have everything. Mm -hmm. They, you know, it's like movies, right? There's a lot of crappy movies, but there's some really good ones too. It's the same (laughs) thing on Twitter. 
And the same thing on Reddit and the same thing on Facebook is you, we are capable of creating spaces and creating communities where people do this right. Uh, my friend, Angel Eduardo, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's over at Fair now. Yeah, yeah. He's become a friend. He actually came over and stayed, stayed in my, uh, my place. Oh, no way. Yeah, he and his oh, wife. Oh, great. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he says, you know, social media is the boss level of discord, <laughs> yeah, yeah. which I love because it is because when you when you um, have such a fraction of the human toolbox of communication at your disposal, like you do on social media, you know, at most you have emojis to mm -hmm. communicate tone. Congratulations. You know, <laughs> you get words, you get emojis. Have at it. Um, it's going to be a lot harder to be understood. And it's going to be a lot harder to stay away from the temptations to fight and argue and perform for dumb reasons, you know, that are not actually satisfying. They only feel satisfying. It's dopamine. It's a drug. Um, so it just means it's a higher level of difficulty to get it right. And that's where your cynicism is maybe a little justified mm. because, uh, I mean, not a lot of people are going to jump to that. Okay. Let me roll up my sleeves and be really intentional. Um, but the reason I have hope anyway is because I think it's still possible to take even tiny steps in the way that in ways that we engage in social media and model that for each other and bit by bit just see some of that spread. I see a lot of exhaustion out there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you do too. I mean, you left. Yeah. There's a lot of exhaustion. We know we know we're killing ourselves. We yeah. know it. We know it. So <laughs> you know, we're gonna be really cynical about it and then we're gonna fix it. I guess I'm just an optimist that way. <laughs> well, I'm glad you are. Yeah, I mean, the, the analogy of the performative thing, it, it's, it's the right word for it. I'm glad you, you said it. It's, that, it's like that thing, I'm sure everyone's experience, you go to like a restaurant, uh, it probably happened a lot in COVID, and like there's a, some people sitting and having a conversation that's like a, a little too loud for like the people who are just <laughs> at their table because they, they know it might be a political one or they might be bitching about masks or something or whatever, whatever the thing is, you yeah. know, that's Twitter is like the conversation that's happening over at the, the table three seats away that you can kind of hear. That's the point. They're not just like passing notes to each other being like, let's, let's just do a little private text chain. They're speaking because to each other, but not really, they are not the audience for each other. And, and, and that, that's such a indirect form of communication that yes. And, and, I've had a lot of good interactions on, on social media. This is not to like, yes, d disparage the whole thing as all good or all bad. Um, but it's certainly, you know, I worry about the economic forces that are behind it that don't oh, incentivize. Yeah. Right. And so, um, yeah. well, I, I, let's get into like some of like the specific issues. Cause we're talking vaguely about discourse and how to talk and stuff, but your book is full obviously of, of personal stories also of, your sales pitch and you called it, I, I like your sort of party trick as this, um, this liberal in Seattle who got to say I'm a Mexican immigrant, but my par I have two parents who voted for Trump two times and like, you know, jaws cool. would hit the floor. Um, talk a little bit about that, that bring that sense of optimism into your own um, stories. You're an excellent storyteller and you tell this wonderful story um, that's pretty honest, I think, about election night and watching it with your parents. Um, and, and how, how that went. I mean, give me your temperature of optimism in those particular moments when you're, when you're deep within it and the emotions are, are raging, you know? Yeah. Wow. Well, let me go back to election night. I mean, yeah. election night, 2020, you know, in, in part because I knew I, I needed to, I needed to take my own medicine. I had thought, Oh, okay. Election night's coming up. How am I going to watch this potential disaster? Uh, what am I going to do? And I thought I could go to my parents' place. <laughs> mm -hmm. And then, 
and and you know that voice kind of had that idea i was like oh I, I guess i could now they yes they voted for trump twice enthusiastically very conservative you know awesome people like i love them to death uh I certainly did not <laughs> vote for Trump. Um, I did I did Hillary and Biden. Uh, and I just thought I need to be there. I, I need I need to I just need to be there. I just need mm -hmm. to see I need to at least ask them. And so I asked them and to my chagrin, they were like, sure, I guess. But they did say, you know, they had a condition later, you know, a couple of days later, like Monica, you can come over to election night. Just please let us watch Fox News without, you know. <laughs> demanding we change the channel like all the time. Can you please do it? I was like, yes, of course. Yes, we'll watch Fox News. Can we do a little CNN? We can do a little CNN. Great, you know? So that was our first negotiation. Um, but yeah, I get there and and I'm I'm there, you know, most of the day. I spent most of the day there. And um, as the returns started coming in, the heat started turning up. Um, there was one, there was one fight uh, about, you know, race and, and things around law enforcement that I remember got really heated so i'm putting myself in that moment now it's like how optimistic am i uh yeah and the answer that's coming up for me is honestly i think those are the moments that i'm most optimistic and i know that doesn't make any sense so let me stop and think about it we we tell each other exactly how angry we are hmm. we show each other exactly how angry we are like that's the kind of in some ways the beauty of uh, our relationship like blame mexican culture a little bit i suppose <laughs> it's a stereotype unfiltered totally applies to my family and so we're just yelling we're just like but this and how could you and there's something about that anger that just feels like we're just saying we're just we're just being us we're just being us and we're screaming at each other because there's something you're not seeing and and uh, inevitably what happens and this happens several times is the temperature would go up We'd scream and we'd say these things. And eventually, after we just got all that crap out, somebody would say, all right, yeah, okay, that makes sense, <laughs> you know? And then the other person would be like, yeah, and I, I get it. I see why you're saying that. Like, yeah, of course, we wouldn't want, you know, we wouldn't want to suddenly get rid of all police. Of course, that would be dumb. Like, whatever whatever it happened to be. Uh, and, and yeah, and then we just like, go serve ourselves another glass of sangria. And then, you know, another hour goes by and we do it again. And we're yeah. still there. Yeah, yeah. If, if, I, if I can interject here, because I, I wrote something down with, with, a, with a big philosophical question, but this is the right time to ask it. It's similar to an earlier one, but it, it's almost that superficial versus deep divide and and you you write also a really you, you have this little like gauge and this little like conversation is it the right time to have the conversation kind of sense or again it's like a wonderful book that um has a lot of just like practical tools of like keep this in your mind when you feel your temperature rising or whatever um so it might not have been the right time but i wrote down this question of um is the difference between peace and progress it's almost i don't know which sort of philosophical school call this yeah. out for the first time but the question of is it really peace if everyone's pointing a gun at each other but no one's firing right this is it's kind of a world politics situation of peace through strength or something like that um or is it peace if everyone just melts all their guns and does something else um it, keeping the like you i think it would be this disparaging if someone was pitching your book and saying, hey, this is a way to get through Thanksgiving without burning the house down <laughs> with, your, yeah. with your relatives who are very different than you politically. That has a lot of value of sort of keeping the peace yeah. and we're not going to... not enough. Right. It's not enough, right? The whole like thing of like, don't talk about religion, politics and, and whatever else at the dinner table as this mantra. Yes, it's a way to keep the peace, but is this a way to actually make progress with each other and moral progress? 
Um, yeah, I mean, if you if you don't mind sort of just like waxing about that, it could be in that moment with your parents when the right time to have that. Have you felt like you've made progress with them? What does progress look like to you rather That's than just peace? Thing. Yeah, because yeah, I, I mean, the, the assumption I hold is that for many, uh, you know, I'll use the label partisans, you know, mm -hmm. folks very invested on one or the other side of the political divide. Progress is and can only be people moving more toward their view of things. Right, right. Um, that is not my definition of progress. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, but my definition of progress in those conversations hmm, is, <clears throat> is seeing where each other is coming from. Uh, the reason that that feels like progress is precisely because my whole thesis where I begin is that we're so divided, we're blinded. To me, progress is just the world seeing itself so that we can work on it realistically and pragmatically for once. It's just been a long time <laughs> since politics, right? Which in a classic sense is supposed to be how people figure out how to thrive together, you know? That, but politics is supposed to be everybody like being honest with each other about these are the tough issues that we're facing as we're trying to coexist. And, and, and this is what I'm thinking, this is what you're thinking. And everyone kind of looking around and seeing, oh yeah, here's the trade-offs all on the table. Let's let's like figure it out. You know, it's never it's never easy. Obviously, it's really hard, but it requires being honest and it requires not thinking that people who don't see things your way are monsters. And so when we get to that point, I mean, I, it doesn't matter what we do. It's all broken. So progress to me is a conversation where you go. I never thought of it that way. I see where you're coming from. It, I don't agree with it. I have taken not a single step toward you in agreement. That is not the point. <laughs> so, so yeah, when it comes to peace versus progress, I completely agree with you. I think that a Thanksgiving dinner that is keeping the peace because no one brings up politics, but the, but the conversations that everyone is having with themselves in their own mind. Which now are, are usually on, on Facebook posts. They're all for, on social media, right? Because problem, they're right? by someone. Yeah. yeah. Yes. People are talking to themselves, but not really. They're, they're exactly. talking to their cousin and then you're suddenly at dinner with them and you're thinking like they wrote that thing on social media. It's That's like, right. Yeah. And you're literally like you're sitting there across from your cousin and you're just eating the turkey or whatever. Yeah. But in your own head, you are playing out a conversation with that person. Does it really matter that you're not doing it out loud? I, I mean... So yeah, now, now obviously I don't want to disparage keeping the peace mm -hmm. because I do think that the most important thing to do with a bridge over a divide is to keep it, not cross it. So if you end up burning a bridge, unfollowing someone you love, like whatever, totally just, no, you're out of my life. Well, wow, you know, that's it. You've ruined any chance at seeing uh, the perspectives that that person holds and represents, and then, you know, understanding the world better better because of it. And also, the other piece that I will add to progress and my definition of progress is turning the temperature down. And yeah. and people use that phrase a lot, but it's not, it's not just about, let's all calm down. It, it's not. I think that it's, it's sharper than that because our fear is a visceral thing that exacerbates the misperceptions. I mean, it's an emotion, yes, but but it it colors everything, and it it keeps us distant when we don't need to be, right? And and it 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 it, it cements assumptions in our head. In the beginning, we talked about curiosity, right? Curiosity is about the gap between what we know and what we don't know. An assumption is 
it, it just hides those gaps. Again, it's, it's, it's certainty. An assumption goes, I already know everything I need to know about how those people think. And so there it is. And we fly toward assumptions and believing our assumptions when we're scared. So it's just a big disaster. So yeah, progress to me is, is by no means agreement. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just being able to see each other and what we really believe. Yeah. I want to throw a, another edit as, um, as not even quite a challenge. Yes. Your, your book is called, I never thought of it that way, which is, uh, and you, you, um, you have an anagram for it. I don't know how you pronounce it in, in, in toy. Into it. Yeah. Okay. Into an intuit moment. At the end, it's just it's it's nagged me. So yeah, yeah. Intuit moment. Correct. (laughs) An intuit moment, and I never thought of it that way. Moment, which which I love when you challenge yourself and your friends to sort of just like keep do a little experiment for me and and let me know when you have one. I love that, but there's almost um, and it's great. It's incredibly powerful when we have them, and I want to talk about that. But but to contrast it again, I'm just sort of playing a little devil's advocate here. But I but I but I but I like. I like what I'm about to say, <laughs> which is that I think there's power in the inverse of it if you do it well, which is to say, um, I did think of it that way and I still disagree and here's why. And if you do that well, it can almost be more powerful. And it's that that's that's maybe my boss level to borrow our friend Angel's sort of, uh, of uh, thing. That it's very hard actually to say, I did think of it that way. And I disagree because usually, as you've pointed out, you really haven't. Most time you fooled yourself into thinking it that way because they're just racist or terrible or they're communist or whatever people are throwing out there. You haven't thought of it that way because nobody, very few people, luckily, very few humans uh, know that they're evil and continue to be that way. Everyone, like everyone has good intentions, everyone. And so, and so if you're trying to say, I did think of it that way and I disagree, you have to really be generous here with that first moment. So for example, in my conversation um, about abortion that I had, which was really just a straight up debate, I didn't start, I'm, I'm pro-choice and, and probably very far on, on that, that spectrum politically. Um, I didn't start by saying, you know, you're a, um, you know, a woman hater, you know, to some pro-lifer. It's, it's that I don't reject the um, notion that this moment of conception or, or moment of fertilization is somehow sacred. I don't reject that it can be uh, a human life even, and it's a taking of an innocent life. I don't reject any of that. In fact, I thought of it that way and I still disagree and here's why. And then I lay out my whole argument. If anyone wants to know all of that, you might think, well, that's horrible. You're taking an innocent life and you think it's a life, but no, go listen to the argument and you see very quickly how even, even agreeing Yes. And putting it in that way of like, I did think of it that way and I disagree is can be incredibly fruitful. And for me, that's the path to get to like these deep uh, agreements, actually, of existential sort of crisis. I, you know, I say, again, that episode's a different episode, which people can listen to. Um, but I can, as a liberal, completely try to find the root of where we agree, which might be a common anxiety and um, caution about a political and moral spectrum without consequence, which I contend is really the conservative ethic, which is not even a bad one. If you say that right, it's like, I can totally see it that way. And I can still disagree. And here's why. And let's get really deep into it. And it was a good conversation. And maybe people found it um, useful. Um, But but that's almost almost the counter of the if the goal is is the intuit moments is there is there a a mirror of that of i don't know what the acronym would be i can't do it quickly in my head but i I did think of it that it's probably it's probably idiot if i did it right i don't (laughs) that'd be great if it actually was if someone just figured it out anyway but but that that's kind of my pitch of the again the sort of like 
how do we when we find a, a a difference which direction do we go i did think of it that way or i never thought of it that way does that yeah, make sense i think yeah. i think the best direction to go is the honest one and mm -hmm. and i love what you just what you just described because it's about it's a it's a point of acknowledgement i think that the power of saying i did think of it that way uh and i disagree and here's why and when can i tell you is that you begin with an acknowledgement that that you actually kind of level with the other person and you say i see it i see what you're saying it, that's that's an extraordinarily powerful moment in a time like this because you know many of our clipped conversations out there uh have no acknowledgement whatsoever uh which of course communicates a sense of lack of validity hmm. and so i mean that, that is really one of the key ingredients i think we're missing is it's not just that we disagree it's that we're really okay with the perception that we don't even find other perspectives valid at least we speak as if we're okay with that perception. And we're really sometimes trying to invalidate the entire human being. And so that's a really rough place to start. That's why this is a mountain. So anytime that you can say, yeah, I thought of it that way. I see what you're, I see what you're saying. We're here. And I went this different direction. Let me tell you about it. Here's why I'm still in this different place. Uh, yeah, that sounds fantastically powerful. I don't know if that got to your whole question. No, I think so. Maybe we can bring up some specific examples because you've also, uh, I saw in one of those videos I watched of the Braver Angels, you get some challenges sometimes of, of maybe trying to, it, it sounds a little kumbaya and lovely and everyone's getting along, but then every, someone always inevitably asks the question of like, okay, where's your limit? Like someone says something atrociously terrible or has this idea that is like super harmful. Um, it, this is almost one of those, like, should you punch a Nazi questions? Yes. Um, you always get one eventually, like, do you find, find a limit of the, I never thought of that, of it that way versus I thought of it that way. It's, I mean, that might get to my question a little, mm. a little more. It's very, it, actually to, to give you a little more fodder to, to chew on yeah, there. I, yeah. I grew up in a, uh, a secular Jewish household, I always describe it as post-Holocaust American Judaism is a new form of sort of religion where frankly the, the highest tenet is never again. It's really become a sort of like never Holocaust again kind of thing. And the, great, I'm on board, never again. That was terrible. Let's try to avoid that. Uh, but but there there's a um, a taboo about humanizing someone like Hitler right there it, it's he's a monster right and That's i correct. and I, as a kid i always had a problem being like wait monsters aren't real yeah. monsters don't exist hitler and the nazis and this this mantra are uh, real people who who did this thing and if we're serious about never again we shouldn't be watching for monsters walking down the street because you'll never see one you're only going to see people with ideas yeah. and psychologies that can we know can unleash horrors upon the world um and so even, I mean, maybe that's the mountain that I'm trying to say is that we should always be striving for this. Maybe I never thought of it that way as the first step because you need that inevitably to be like, wait, okay, now I did think of it that way and I still disagree. And now yes. what do I do? Maybe that's yeah. the challenge that you get is like, yes. it's not being like, oh, Nazis have points too, or yeah. Trump is actually a great president. You could be like, okay, wait, I, 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 I never thought of it that way. And then I got through that let me check if I'm doing that right. And now I thought of it that way and I still disagree. And now can we actually have an interesting conversation? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And you'll go levels deeper because in a way, I, I guess with that construction, you know, I never thought of it that way as saying, I've, I've opened my eyes to something into right. a different perspective I didn't see. So now you see that issue, you see that world, you see the true nuance and complexity of it a little better. So you can revisit 
your disagreement, test it, check it, but it will be wiser and richer now. Um, and I think that's what it is, is like, the I never thought of it that way moment is is an eye-opening moment. Literally, we call it that, right? Oh, that was eye-opening. <laughs> that's what we mean. It was an eye-opening moment. So, so I guess I would say this, I think that judgment is sound. We must judge the world, yeah. Yeah, yeah. right? Of course, this is this is not an excuse for let's not judge. Let's just look for the generous understanding and leave it at that. But we can, I believe, we don't judge very well without opening our eyes. So we don't open our eyes unless in a polarized world, we cross some divides and get curious. If we think we know enough, we're, we're falling prey to certainty at a time when we're just surrounded by uncertainty and if we don't stare that in the face we're, we're gonna we're gonna make some reckless decisions i think we already have so yeah. much of our politics is about it's all i mean right it's all driven by beating the other side H how is that how is that building good society right. we we know that we know that doesn't make sense so anyway i just think the only way we're going to get through that is judgment is needed you know hitler was a monster for what he did of course he was and there's a kind of there is a moral clarity by labeling him as such right and and having one community but really the whole world we hope <laughs> but like one community in particular making that like a thing that we don't forget is important um because we can't we can't repeat these mistakes we can't we can't forget these lessons um but we can't do that i think even in the case of hitler right um at the expense of allowing our, our our curiosity to go and revisit and look and, and look at something from many different angles. Anytime we flatten anything too much, you know, we we risk no longer seeing it or our relationship to it in a complicated enough way that it allows us to be wise about what it represents and, and how we relate to it. So I think I do believe that's true, even in the case of Hitler. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, we I don't know. I, I think we saw what Hitler did pretty clearly. This is, I think this is really good. I want to stay on it because um, yeah, I don't know your experience with people who we, we clearly, I don't, your upbringing and my upbringing, we could, we could get into it and see what we thought, but we were, I was shielded from seeing things that way. <laughs> I, I never thought of it that way for ideas that I, that I, you know, conservative ideas generally. I know a lot of so, people. Do you mean you were shielded from, from seeing any conservative ideas? Yeah. Is that what you yeah. Okay. Yeah. As, as anything other than sort of just evil or retrograde or, you know, counter progress or something. Um, and, and I, and I'm not alone. I mean, I don't want to bring in his name, but Dave Rubin is someone who I, I, I interviewed actually for, for the film ages ago and it didn't make the cut, who went on one of these famous trajectories, which people know about. And I, I sympathize a lot with, he, he, he expressed something very similar to that as me of like, he had never even heard a conservative idea or even a free market idea or something expressed in any other way that, that, made, that made sense. And I'm not gonna, I don't, I haven't followed his track that much ever since I left social media, obviously, but a lot of people seem to be very reactionary when they hear an idea that they had never thought of that way and suddenly it makes sense to them for the first time. It's eye-opening and then suddenly they're on that team. They've gone all the way over to the other side uh, 
and they haven't retained what you're saying is that curiosity of that step of, oh, wow, okay, so wait, I never even heard sort of a rational argument of maybe smaller government or free market economics, or I don't know the, the, the flavor of your parents' conservatism, but maybe it's something, like I said, of sort of a, um, a, a moral structure that's necessary for humans to have a meaningful life that requires consequences and who kn- I don't know what it is or even just a divine we need a god because we, we can't mm-hmm. yeah I mean, it tends to be what I, I assume and then I have to investigate it and see if I'm actually getting and it you right. just turned an assumption into a question well yeah. done. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, I like your book um, it, it, but but yeah the, this this um, this notion of um fear of even letting in an idea or seeing something in a light that's moral or rational or because morality is incredibly complex. I, I reject objective morality, obviously, although I think we should strive for it eternally. It's incredibly complex and letting in an idea or even even worse, exposing children to an idea of something that, that they will will, um, you know, hear as rational and, and moral. And it's possible for a moral person to, to hold this position is very scary for people. And and seems to be reinforced when we see these rapid shifts of people who who go from a super siloed, maybe left mentality, and then for the first time th- think of it that way because they're exposed, which is which is really pointing to the, the the awful kind of situation they were in to begin with, where we didn't expose them and they didn't get this kind of kind of discourse, um, and then they completely jump to the other side and they forget that they even if you think of something that way and it's and it makes sense to you, you can still disagree with it. Yeah. disagreeing and having a different moral stance with something that totally also is a moral stance is the complexity maybe that you're, you're trying to embrace. But I guess my question is, is to, to give some, some um, assessment to that picture that I just gave you, but then also some credence to the people who are very afraid of platforming certain ideas in a way right. be, because they, they fear that, you know, letting out the secret that, showing that let's let's get off the hitler thing because it's probably a step too far but showing <laughs> some, some you know far radical idea or something in a way that potentially is moral or makes sense is very dangerous because you're going to get people immediately to jump to that side and suddenly we have a problem yeah no i think it's a i think it's a well-founded fear you know i think there are situations where we've seen it happen as you said and and who wouldn't be afraid um here's where i disagree with that narrative uh, or the, the the assumed chain of events that, you know, leads, okay, one person exposed to, uh, I don't know, a bad idea in a generous light, boom, switches over without any inquiry. First, I mean, as I've sort of, you know, studied and, and reflected on um, opinions, how, how we form them, how we hold them, uh, one thing that I've, that I've come to believe is they take, they take a long time. You know, seeds are planted in our brain. We hear something one day and we don't really know. We, we don't have to be conscious of how or whether that seed grows in our brain for it to grow in our brain. It will, if it's meant to. If it finds fertile ground, some idea, it will grow. And in some cases it can take years, right? For someone to realize that that thing they heard years ago actually started working on them and changing them. For some people, it's immediate. And something they hear is like an aha moment and they decide to make a huge change. They switch teams, they they take this drastic action. I mean, we can't control that even for ourselves, I guess is what I'm saying. So as a result of that, I take that narrative 
that you just laid out and I would, I would amend it in this way. If a person hears an idea uh, put generously and, 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 and then takes some drastic actions or, or actions that to us seem drastic, I would clarify, to us seem drastic, mm. to us seem like they were not accompanied by enough inquiry. That's just our assumption. But, but sure, um, then I believe that that person was going to do it anyway. In other words, I believe that, that the, the, the change for them had more to do with the fertile ground in their own minds than it did with being exposed to that idea in a generous way. I think it is more dangerous for us to not allow ourselves to discuss our truly held good faith beliefs with each other um, out of fear that our constitutions are not strong enough to lead us where we need to go. So that takes a certain level of faith, I suppose. Um, but, but, but I suppose I have it. Uh, I believe that good ideas win. I do. Uh, I believe the best ideas ultimately win. I, I believe that there is a real harm in assuming that we are all that vulnerable and that, and, that, and that a bad idea could just infect us like a virus and that it can infect all of us equally. I just don't think that that is true. I don't think, I think we're made of tougher stuff. And I think if, if, if it does happen occasionally to some people, it was gonna happen. They had the fertile ground. We can't see the fertile ground. We can't see, we can't read minds or hearts. So we're left over here to assume that it was reckless and that there was no explanation for it whatsoever. But we don't know that. That person's a black box to us. There was fertile ground in there. And so, you know, I just think you lose a lot by saying, let's not let ideas move freely because we're afraid that some people for whom there will, there will be fertile ground will move. But we also lose the opportunity for all the rest of us to, to understand and see that idea and how it's cycling through our world and understand that it makes the layers of our world and therefore see our world more clearly. Turn the temperature down, you know, have things be less scary for us. I think we live better lives that way. There's, I'm gonna go again to sort of like the, the, the deeper narratives that I, I, I try to hit to here. I, I think what we're really suffering from about in the West at the moment is we think freedom kind of sells itself as a good idea. We ought to admit that freedom itself is an incredibly difficult state to be in existentially it's incredibly difficult hmm. uh, an anarchic godless world that's that's pure freedom i suppose and that's totally terrifying and a lot of people want to give that up we'll, we'll turn that card in willingly for the certainty of not uh, of knowing what the answer is of having a path to go um and i i think this is maybe advice to my my fellow liberals is acknowledge how much the state of philosophical and existential freedom demands of a person and forgive people for struggling with it all the time. And if we're honest with ourselves and we notice the lure of escaping it in every way that we always do. Some people have a child because they don't know what to do with their lives and that gives them meaning. And that's a great, it's a great sort of like escape from freedom in a way. And you could find, you could find ways to fight against this, but this is, this is the state of man and the state of humanity. Um, this is a long pitch to say that I feel like politics is boring to me. 
because politics is this emergent property of much deeper philosophical anxieties that we all genuinely share and psychological states and anxieties that we all share if we're, if we're honest with each other. Um, so I don't, I don't even remember the prompt or what I, I was sort of wanting to, to throw at you there, but, but maybe it's to get you to talk about this, um, level of, I, I guess when I was reading some of your advice and some of your, and listening to some of your, your worries about complexity, I just couldn't help but think a lot about these social psychologists who work on, on this field and maybe thinking that you, um, were making it sound a little too easy or cavalier to embrace complexity when actually it's, it's the hardest possible thing that, that we can, we can do. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that's right. I think I think you make a really, really strong case for that. Um, and so many things ju just that that, um, you know, freedom, fr freedom is such a it's a core value in the American identity. And but as you point out, everybody, the idea does catch on. It's just what we mean by the idea and how we interpret the idea. And so, you know, we think of freedom, the opposite of freedom being kind of being caged, being trapped, right, being whatever, you don't have that many options. But the other opposite of freedom is organization. Mm -hmm. um, at least when you put boundaries on things, it, it gives you clarity, it gives you certainty about where you should and should not go. And that makes life a little more manageable. Uh, the image that just came to mind for me actually is, I remember, <laughs> it's gonna seem so unrelated, it's not. I remember being in like high school and looking, going to google.com and looking at that search bar <laughs> and having and thinking like I can access all the world's knowledge. <laughs> I was like, what do I what do I search? Yeah. I you know, because it was still new enough. I was like, I I don't know what to do. <laughs> yeah, that was yeah. perfect. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. It's too much freedom. I don't I don't know what to do. What should I write? What should I search? Oh my God, am I am I dumb for searching something really silly? Like, yeah. what do I do? So it's like paralyzing. Complexity is paralyzing. Access mm -hmm. to everything is paralyzing. Um, but is it hard? I don't. I don't know. I mean, yes, it's psychologically hard because you're going to have to take whatever boundaries you've built on your life to keep it organized. Hmm. Question them. That's hard. But I don't know. For me, the potential benefit is just better. Yeah. L let yeah. me sharp. Let me sharpen it this way. Um, and because you you alluded to it is there's sort of two conceptions of, of um, freedom. And one is the negative conception, and one is the positive conception. Negative freedom is freedom from. And you sort of mentioned it. I think, and especially in American consciousness, we take this for granted as the only way to think about freedom, which is a freedom means not being coerced by an external force. Yeah. No, no totalitarian government, no king in England telling you that the tea has a tax. You know, no, no slave owner, right? Like this was the fight for freedom. And then the, the inverse of it is freedom too, which is, okay, freedom to do what? This is the kind of freedom. And that's what you were experiencing as the paralyzing, like, wait, like no one's telling me what to search. Maybe if you're in China or Russia, an authoritarian uh, state, which certainly still in the West, we have this like allergy to, probably for good reason, because that we know that one. That's external negative freedom is, is not there. There's an, there's an external sort of telling you what to search. Um, but now when you achieve this state of maybe stripping away the negative freedom, you're left with what Americans, and I think the West has taken for granted of now you have freedom, but, but do you, because the bigger hurdle, the bigger, bigger challenge is the freedom of the self 
of consciousness, of conformity, of uh, maybe getting your book of like not causing uh, anger and, or, or getting along with with relatives, the, the, the self-regulating that we that we we do, and this doesn't need to be sort of the like cancel culture woke kind of thing, but just the conformity that we do. I mean. Yeah. I don't. I can't wait for like the the decade of social psychology books that are going to come out about COVID. Yeah, I mean, gosh. what an incredible <laughs> natural experiment! For, I was I talking, know. Right. I was talking to my mom about. Um, uh, she lives in the eastern side of Florida, eastern coast of Florida, and she's like, everyone wears a mask now inside. They just sort of do it. There's no mandate, but they do it just sort of like nearly 100% in her community, but they take it off outside. And and then she's like, but on the west coast in like Tampa area, she's like zero. And it's like like. COVID at this point in mask wearing has almost nothing to do with COVID itself. It's yeah. all just social conformity. And totally. here's my thesis. I don't know what's happening in your neighborhood. Um, every salon has masks that I've seen here. It, there's going to be certain businesses that are going to be the last to take off the masks if they ever do. And I and I have a feeling that it's so much better explained rather than the science of people are afraid of COVID. No, it's, it's really not that. It's explained through psychology. And in particular, I think everyone could do this experiment who's listening, the businesses that seem to offer kind of indulgent or extravagant services, like a salon is not something that like you need to survive. It's not a grocery store. It's, you know, it's, it's a little excess and there's kind of a guilt that goes along with that. Um, and so I put on the mask to signal that like, you know, oh, actually you still care about everyone else. It's, it's all a bit of a signal into ourselves. And this isn't even, you know, I'm being a little flippant about it. Um, and certainly there's still danger, whatever asterisk about COVID there. Um, but I just cannot wait for all of these uh, <laughs> books that are going to come out about, about this. But, but that goes to the point of like, um, that's just a small example of walking into somewhere and there's no mandate. There's no external force of you putting on this mask. You are free to wear it or not. And the conformity of society might cause you to put it on right now. Again, this is all in everybody's choice, supposedly. But are we really making our own free choices in this world? We're, con you know, we're constantly dealing with how free were you to make a choice? Is that really freedom? And then the existential question of freedom to do what are the bigger ones of like, what kind of society do we want to build? Cool. We got freedom. There's no king. Now, what are we going to do? And that's incredibly scary for people. So this yeah. is all, all to say freedom is, is, is a, it is. is. A hard I think question. The, term, the term creative constraint, I've always loved it because, uh, you know, in the tech world, in the startup world, like creative constraints are awesome, you know, but <laughs> all that really is, we're just saying, give us less freedom. We will think better. I mean, that's sort of fascinating, isn't it? Yeah. Give us less freedom and we will create better things. Wow. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> but it, it does seem to be true because of, because it's too paralyzing. It's too much. Um, we need a direction to walk in. And it seems like we are not, it seems like each of us on our own is not enough that we are, we are social creatures and we need to do this in tandem. You're going to love this. Mm. When I pick up my kids from school, uh, my daughter, actually, because my son walks home. When I pick up my daughter from school, I'm in Seattle, so you can guess a little bit about our mask wearing culture over here. We <laughs> love these masks. Um, we, we all stand outside and uh, we're all very far apart, I would say. And we wait for our kids by a gate. And I don't wear masks outside anymore. I haven't done that for a long time. Like when I'm, when I'm outside, you know, whether it's playing with people or hanging out with people, absolutely no masks. But when all the parents gather outside to pick mm -hmm. up their kids. Every single person is wearing a mask. Yeah. Outside. 
for no reason. <laughs> you know right. what I mean? But I should say, for, no, there is a reason. And the reason is conformity. It's, it's, it's got a lot to do with conformity. And I, I find that a really fascinating, like I'm, I'm waiting for the day. I'm going up, you know, I guess I'm slipping on my mask. I'm looking around. Anybody? Bueller? Anybody? Not wear a mask today? No? All right. We'll try again tomorrow, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it usually happens really quickly. These tipping points of like, I don't know, the hundredth monkey kind of like paradigm of like you hit this like 10% and then suddenly it goes to zero. And I think that's probably what we'll see in a lot of these places. It might be, yeah, it might be fast. But, but this harkens back to bring it back to some of the more serious like topics of your, your book. I, this is serious, actually. I think it's a great example. I'm just like in love with COVID at this point as a pure social experiment. <laughs> yes. um, but, uh, you know, the, the classic conformity experience, because you mentioned earlier about maybe a alluding to our robustness that we can do this we're 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 up to the challenge and is this notion of um the strong lore and maybe underappreciated lore of conformity but you know the classic experiments of i, I don't know if you, if you know these gosh i always forget his name um who did those experiments with um uh like seven people would be sitting in a room answering really really basic questions it was on college campuses and he would put out an advertisement to invite students and they thought they were joining the psychological experiment and they they didn't know that it was just one person was actually being experimented on and the other six kids in the room were all part of the the, the game and so they would show up and they would always be uh the last one in the room like the, the the six other students who were part of the experiment all knew to show up a little early and they were sitting there. So the, the one person, the Mark comes in or whatever, and he sits down and like, oh, you're a little late. We're, we're going to get started. We're answering these really simple questions. And they would show like a lot, two lines that were clearly different and say like, just tell me which line is longer, A or B. And at first, all the all the students, they go in order. They The mark is last in, in the row, of course. They go in order, and they all answer correctly. Like, it's A, it's longer, it's longer, it's longer. So the first, like, five or six, they're answering exactly what you would think. But after, it's all scripted, after, like, the fifth or sixth one, they start answering, like, the, the wrong one with, with pure confidence of, like, and just one or two of them might do it at first, like, you know, it's B, it's B. And then, like, the mark, of course, at first looks around, like, you know, is that right? And and they and at first they almost always say like, no, it's a. I, I see that's the longer one, but it's remarkable with like a degree of between seventy and eighty-five percent. You would get within at least ten or fifteen iterations, you would get the mark to be clearly saying the wrong one when they knew it was wrong for the sake of conformity. Or these other simple like candid camera experiments of you've probably seen these of getting into an elevator and everybody's just facing the wall for no reason. <laughs> and the person gets in and then after like a minute, they just turn to you pro will probably be able to do the same thing with masks of just like start wearing your mask over like your left eye for some yeah. random reason and just see if you could get everybody to do it. And they'll be like, oh, there must have been some study of like COVID gets in your left eye now. And, and so, anyway, it's sort of, it, they're funny, they're funny, but they're also scary, right? We talked about Nazism earlier, and that's like the horrible case of this kind of psychology being hijacked and mirroring with legitimate political grievances and then mirroring with anti-Semitism and psychological fear. And suddenly you have awful states of nature. So these are all funny stories and we like watching them, but it's also maybe a bit of a challenge to your effort that is totally beautiful. The book is great for like one-on-one -on -one conversations, how to have a better conversation with your cousin. And I think it's great, but scaling it up seems to bump into this conformity wall uh, yeah. in a way. Like, so maybe that's a challenge to you of like, are we really no, it, up to it the is. challenge? It is yeah. an absolute active challenge. I yeah. mean, I, to me that writing the book was just the first, you know, the first sort of volley, like the first, like, all right, y'all, here's, here's how I'm seeing Oh, there are so many good directions to go to from here. 
yeah, I mean, with those studies about conformity, I, I think about there's a beautiful reason that those work. And, and it's because we really are not just individuals. Like we we can be very, very strong as individuals, extraordinary. Like like one person can do, we know, like it, it's the most important, I mean, it's the most powerful thing in the universe is a human being. <laughs> and, and at the same time, um, what we can do when we are collective is what's made us so successful as a species at all. Uh, it's, it's extraordinary. It, it's, it's amazing how our brains are built to belong. It's beautiful. And, and I got to tell you, like in my journalism career, I, I became known for in, uh, engagement journalism, community driven journalism, um, built a lot of communities, you know, got to understand, speak about, train others in how, you know, building communities and understanding how communities work can help any media organization, frankly, survive, right? And, and thrive and also understand if their stories are even making sense and that kind of thing. It's a beautiful idea, but there's a dark side to community mm. that we almost never talk about because community just sounds <laughs> nice. You know, we love it. Everyone wants to belong, let's all belong. But the dark side is, well, is, is that communities bond more quickly when they have another community that they are not and that they keep in mind. And, and othering, that's othering. So so that's the, you know, the, the beautiful and the dark side of community, but but it is beautiful. And we do already, you know, I, I think I think maybe I mis, misheard you, but, but this idea of like, oh, we could, you know, manipulate the psychology in big bad ways. We're manipulating the psychology, we've been doing it all along. Um, I mean, in the early days of social media, I was a technology reporter and columnist for several years. And um, it was a real kind of wake up call, you know, to realize years after, the sort of like Arab Spring and and this this idea that like wow social media is finally going to democratize us all. Um, it, it took several years to realize. Wait a minute, we were all doing and celebrating. You know, from the tech journalists to the startup founders, everybody, we were we were doing and celebrating hacking human psychology in order to keep people's eyeballs on, you know, tools and platforms as much as possible. And we none of us saw the evil in that. None of us saw the bad parts of that at all. But we were we were completely like understanding human psychology, understanding community and belonging and just and just drilling in. And media does it too. I mean, our, the way we write our headlines. Anyway, it's it's just a long-winded way of saying we already we have been doing this a long time to each other. Yeah. yeah. We have been exploiting our need to belong when it comes to making our arguments, arguments, right? We, we make dishonest arguments and we, you know, we try to set traps when we debate with each other and we make it about everything except actually bringing the strongest cases to the forefront and looking at them with humility and intellectual honesty. Like we'll make it about anything else. We know how to play the game, but that's what we're doing, but actually manipulate each other and throw bombs from the side. We know how to do it. And when we do that, because it makes us feel good, because we have some we have signals we need to send to the people who believe that we are a certain way. And we're scared of the freedom to be ourselves. We don't want that freedom, yeah. especially not now. Not now the world is terrifying. Like I get fired for saying the wrong thing on yeah. Twitter. I could get fired for saying the wrong thing on Twitter 10 years ago. Holy crap. Like, we're, we're, yeah, like this, this environment is not one where we are inviting people to honest engagement with ideas. And until we fix that, we won't be able to engage with ideas in any 
in any like productive way. It's just, anyway, I went on a bit of a. <laughs> no, no, no. It's, it's really good. Cause I'm, uh, I, I, I want to get to, um, I don't know how to get to this, this, this question and this, this phrase I want to get out of my mouth in any eloquent ways. Maybe I'll just barge into it, but, um, I'll do it this way in your book and in your conversations on braver angels, which are great. You do a really good job of, of sort of not dismissing or denying that there are genuine differences and genuine political problems to solve that, that, the, you know, this isn't to dismiss every issue and just sort of be like, Oh, I, we all never thought of it that way. So let's no. smile yeah. and just like roll the dice or something. You, you, you know, you say there's, there's real issues and I, you know, I think a little a meme that might be, drifting around at the moment to, and I don't want to sound conspiratorial because it's not a conspiracy when you're, I, you did get me right that I do think we are being exploited and not be for any sort of, you know, nefarious, like world government reason, just normal capitalism. Yeah. Business, right. It's like Twitter's going to do what Twitter does. Facebook's going to, everyone's trying to sell you stuff and no one really, we all know the arguments at this point, but everyone seems futile to, to resist against them. And, and I think a, a little bit of a, uh, I don't know when it's going to happen, but it does seem that people, are catching on in some ways to that this culture war is a distraction from, and this it doesn't need to sound so Marxist, but a class war or like a genuine kind of sort of, um, you, know, you know, there's yeah. real problems of economic distribution and, and we could yep. even say equity distribution if you want to put any kind of on it. So, yeah, you're on board. And, and, and so he, like what I'm trying to drive to, and this has been 15, oh my gosh, 20 years now almost of doing this is one day, uh, if if this works out <laughs> in my head and wasn't so violent, the Bernie kids and the Trump kids are going to realize they're on the same team, yeah. and they and they seem like the most distant groups at the moment. But when you actually, if you go into the deeper sort of existential kind of, they both feel exploited, they both feel ignored, they both feel used, and I think by the same people. We we they don't want to see it. I love your your line of that we're so part we're so distant that we're blinded at this point. Um, at one day, if you go back and even listen to some of those Occupy Wall Street kids and what they were interviewing about, they sound indistinguishable from Trump kids now. And it, I mean, on the superficial level, it couldn't be further apart. But on the existential level, if you go into sort of that initial thing I started with of deeper, they sound identical. And it's real good stuff and genuine if you ask me, as maybe someone who, who really is having major problems with the economic structures that we have here and is maybe a little more pessimistic to you about sort of how um, up to the challenge the current molded uh, human is in this Western situation, given the way we educate kids, which I did another episode about. I don't think we're very well prepared to do this and we're going to continue to be exploited a little bit. To bring in another uh, quote from, from that book, the fear of the past is that we would be slaves. The fear of the future is that we'll become robots. Feels like sort of the, the moment we're at in sort of the West and that we're talking about conformity and sort of mindless self escapes from freedom. It, we're not afraid of a of an external king and a slave owner coming and enslaving us anymore. Good, we got rid of a lot of that negative freedom, but it 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 seems that yeah. if we if we can sort of <laughs> find that that deeper root in American society in the West generally, I don't know what that looks like, and I hope it's not sort of like a violent revolution. No, it doesn't need to look that way, but. I don't, I don't know how any, how any of that strikes you of it's clear to someone, maybe thinkers like you and I, that we're not partisan and we're not 
far yeah. apart. It's the, the culture war is is like a sideshow to a much larger story that is actually pretty consistent. And if people have problems with that story that's happening, which which I do, we have to find each other and realize that yeah, you know, we really do. <laughs> stop fighting about NASCAR and like Confederate flags or whatever, and actually realize like, you know what, these are all symbols and, and we have genuine, we have a genuine protest to make collectively somehow. Yeah, no, oh my gosh. Okay, I'll start here. Uh, so there's a, a guy at the Kettering Foundation, this is a wonderful foundation that studies democracy as it should work, and Brad Rourke, and, and he talked to me about what he calls not values, but things held valuable. And mm. uh, and he's not the only, I mean, there's many thinkers on this, but, um, but this idea that when societies form at the most basic level, there's contracts. And, and those, those result in things held valuable that we all have to consider as we make the best decisions we can for the moment on a bunch of tough issues. One of the things that informs what we hold valuable, um, you know, our collective security, obviously it's good for us to be together and live together because, well, maybe we feel safer. You know, we have things like police departments and fire departments and whatnot, like we, we, we do that, right? And, and one of the deepest and most essential is the economic question that in return for my labor of some kind, I get, um, I get benefits. I, I get benefits. I am a part of the society in these ways. You know, society is structured in this way. And it's, it's remarkable to me, uh, you know, to, to agree with so much of what you're saying. It's remarkable to me how we don't look at something that critical a lot more often and, and, and check the health of it. Uh, or rather, we look at a lot of proxies for it and think that we've seen enough. Um, there's been a lot of good writing about how the unemployment rate is maybe not the greatest metric or the metric we thought it was. Um, you know, our world keeps changing, but our habits for checking on our own health don't very quickly, mm. you know, and it's all based on convention. And for some people, it still works. And so they don't keep questioning. <laughs> and for all the folks who are just like spinning out because because they're being completely left behind by by the society. I mean, my goodness, I mean, you look at some of the statistics and I, I don't have any of them in my head, but like it's it's you we're supposed to be what is progress, right? I mean, other generations, prior generations, you know, their kids could make more money than them. You know, they could advance socially um, with, th th there was a certain contract and that contract is being completely obliterated. Um, and we don't fully understand why. And we're not really asking smart questions about it, I think. And we're not having the open conversation. One of the things I really appreciate about being at River Angels, I had an I never thought of it that way moment in a meeting with, um, uh, I think our president, David Blankenhorn and some leaders. And, and they were talking about, they were talking about class and how, you know, at Braver Angels, our, our charter is equal red and blue, right? Our 74 local chapters on the country, let's make sure they have equal red and blue leadership that at least will get us somewhere on this whole partisan thing. Um, but but one that I really hadn't thought about was was socioeconomic class. And and he was talking about how, you know, a lot of people who, who work here at Braver Angels have college degrees. And he saw that as a problem. And, and I was like, oh, I never thought of it that way. Uh, I think, uh, I, I might be wrong about this, so don't quote me, but I think it's something like 64% of Americans don't have college degrees. All of my friends have college degrees, mm -hmm. all of them. Yeah. And, and, and when I'm, you know, when I'm working or whatever, when I'm in a, uh, when I, when I'm in a work environment and, and somebody says, oh, you know, 
um, we put a job posting and you have to have a college degree. Nobody questions it. Nobody questions it. And for the first time, I'm thinking of that as discrimination. Mm. And and it's a it's a it's an idea that's growing in my head. I can tell it's growing. Yeah. Whoa! What are we doing? What are we not seeing? Colleges cost an arm and a leg and another arm and another leg and so much more than they did when I was growing up and so much more than when my parents were growing up. What are we doing? So that scares me. Why we're not? Wow. <laughs> so yeah. I'll leave it like that scares no michael sandell's book um the tyranny of merit makes a a wonderful wonderful point that that is the last acceptable discrimination um it's a fantastically good book i i recommend it really highly to you um as well but yeah i I mean i i think that you were speaking to my heart there about this sort of what are we doing question which seems to be um Whenever anybody says turn down the temperature, or, turn down the volume or whatever, that's kind of the only the way I interpret it of like, can we just hit pause and ask, well, what are we doing? <laughs> Where are we driving this train? Which, again, to, to sound cynical, is exactly what the news cycle and social media don't want you to do. In, in fact, the, the, the CDC, I think, finally wrote like too much news consumption is actually a health risk right now during COVID. They did? Uh, I think oh. so. I'm, I might be quoting that wrong. This was someone. I mean, we all know it. Said, we know it. We absolutely we all know, know it. it. Which, it, which it is. I, I mean, there was someone, um, I was on a different podcast who made the point of like when, when they see just like a 30 something healthy looking person walking down the street outside, totally alone, wearing a mask. He's not worried at all about COVID. He wants to stop and ask them about their mental health. Like, are you okay? Have we, are you scared? Have we harmed you? And that that's crazy. So the forces that the forces constantly, the economic cycle that you can't seem to just stop pedaling or else you'll be left behind all of these things, the social media game that you can't stop playing or else everyone forgets about you, which inevitably happened to me a little bit when I quit. Um, all of these, these cycles that feel exhausting, it seems there's nowhere, there's very few places left in society to stop and ask, wait, what are we doing? What am I doing is something that people are getting a little, maybe like, you know, going to these meditation retreats. Although a lot of that is getting hijacked at this point of like how to be more productive in work by meditating. And that seems like, oh, you've totally ruined yes. the point, right? Oh, but, it's true. But, but the, these collective what are we doing moments, which I think in its best conception is what Better Angels, sorry, Braver Angels, used to be called Better Angels, I think. Braver Angels will, is trying to sort of build forums for is like, let's all get together and ask what, what are we doing? And yeah, the first thing crack the ice and then be like, wait, what are we doing? And I'm just going to have because I think there there are genuine political and economic like the next century is going to be fascinating. What's happening literally today with this probably first proxy of of what's going to be a Cold War. It seems that we can't kind of avoid it between an East West kind of description of philosophy. Um, uh, I mentioned this on on a a recent podcast about international law. One of my guests was, you know, I I think the West generally suffers from a bit of a a hubris about the confidence of neoliberal politics being right because we won the first Cold War and we kind of got a little lazy about it. We think we we won the first Cold War Um, and the cracks are really starting to show of this hubris where we're just so confident that the system is the one that produces the best results and there's nowhere to stop and ask sort of, what are we doing and what's the direction we're going? What's the point of work? There's this very nascent, I don't know how organized it is, anti-work movement happening now. I think, again, another fascinating COVID thing is people not going back to work. And as you already pointed out, the unemployment, and that's not just because they found better prospects. That's because they're reassessing their lives. But I don't know how long this is going to last. If you sort of look at this from a, 
zoomed out perspective, they'll be bribed to go back with enough money. And, you know, and, the, and the, the libertarians among us will say, hey, look, the system worked. They got more wages or whatever. But I, there's, this, there's this collective, if we're talking about things that really bring us together, this angst and anxiety and, and a little yeah. hollowness about what we're doing with our own lives. Oh, yeah. And with each other, that should be another one of these just genuine, like, you know, oh, yeah. Trump, Trumpers and lefties just have to get together. And the Trumpers obviously have a lot of resentment that's grown, grown around them because it seems the power and the money went to the coasts and went to the blue areas. And so they're like, who are you to say that you're having an existential crisis? Give me your Bentley or whatever. And, and we get that. And that's what Braver Angels works on to sort of break through. But yeah. maybe this is very, um, I don't know. Pascalian of me, someone, one of your co-hosts actually brought up of, of Blaise Pascal, of maybe if we all start by admitting that we're all a little miserable secretly would yeah. be the best place to be like, now Now can we start talking about yes. what, what no, kind of world I we want to build together? That's what, we, that's what we're admitting. I mean, yeah. I, I went into, um, you know, airports have these stores, little shops. It's like, oh, I got time. And I go into one of these shops. And it was one of those like kitschy sort of really cool hipster stores that always have like the coolest little stuff. And so you just, you don't buy anything, but you just go around because it's so like hip. There's a few of these stores, but anyway, I'm going through because this, this store really is sort of my sense of like, where's the culture right now? Mm. Oh, there's like RBG socks and, and Michelle Obama, like coasters. And there's this and that, and there's like, there's political things and there's non-political things. And anyway, this one time that I went in, I was really, 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 really awestruck by how, how many products in there from bracelets with little mottos to, I don't know, like mugs and all kinds of stuff that was all based on personal self-care mm. and acknowledgement and anxiety reduction and laughing at our own anxiety you know there uh, there there's like a it's it's getting kind of famous like one of those sort of name pl uh, plates that you can put on like your desk if you're an important person and it says like <laughs> i'm a i'm an effing badass or something like that. all this self affirmation and i think like maybe father's day was coming up or something i don't know but i went to uh to the the back and there was a section just for men like they always have a section just for men like gifts for your dad or whatever same thing hmm. you know and like we think of men as sort of like we're not going to talk about emotions oh boy all kinds of products that are all about our internal anxiety so this is a this is a a point a data point i suppose for something that i've seen happening you know slowly and growing which is exactly what you're saying like we are admitting that we're miserable we hmm. we are it's almost like we've we've turned everything inside out Right. Um, one thing that we are not pretending, one way that we're being sort of honest, I suppose, is we're no longer pretending that things aren't super stressful and super crazy and like we don't know how to handle it and all that stuff. We're actually laughing about it. There's memes about it. We're, we're, we're putting it all in. <laughs> you guys, I'm losing my mind, you know, yeah. and everyone from, you know, now it's almost like a fight to see who's more anxious. You know, the working mom without daycare and the, you know, the the man who lost his job and the, everybody, everybody is is so anxious. And what's here's what's funny, as I heard you speak, I realized that that I guess I am a hopeless optimist is giving me a strange amount of optimism, because what if that is really actually going down to the root? Yeah. What if that is what if we are already hitting pause and saying, what are we doing? And we don't realize that we're doing it, but we are because we are actually getting down to the individual level and going this isn't healthy. Mm -hmm. we're, we're laughing about it and we're distracting ourselves and we're buying products and like fancy teas, you know, like, and, and whatever, like, oh my God, diffusers and essential oils. 
are all the rage right now. Anything yeah. to relax you and, and meditate so that you can get back to work. Right. <laughs> but, but I'll tell you the biggest, I never thought of it that way moment that I've had this episode is where you said that quote about the fear of the past is that we'll be yeah. slaves. Fear of the future is that we'll be robots. I never thought of it that way, that the fear of the future is that we'll be robots. That rings so true to me, that that's a way to encapsulate that we know we're being had in some ways and we don't know how to stop it because, well, it has enough benefits. And and who it's not like one person's at fault. These are all systems. I don't know. What do we do? And and even worse than that, we are we are convinced that we chose them. We are convinced that these are all free market choices and we chose these things into it. Yeah. So so who are we to complain? Hey, if you want to stop, just quit it. You know, before I finally quit Twitter, I'm sure you've seen the joke that gets repeated every day, thousands of times of like, help me get banned from this thing. Right. And it's it's a joke because because it's admitting like, of course, I have free choice just to close and close my account, but I can't. So like, let me just like throw a rage and get kicked off of this thing. But but you're th- to throw in some of um, my optimism, because I totally agree. It was it was, re- it was on a, it was on a good mushroom trip, actually, recently where I had this. this, uh, this I, I often have. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I had a, a really um optimistic kind of beautiful insight moment as often happens in these states of consciousness, which maybe I should do an episode all about psychedelics. But um, I wrote down, because sometimes I just really want to write in this state, and I wrote down this like paragraph about how proud I was of everybody for this like weird, subtle protest of, of not going back. It was at the moment where, which I think has subsided already a little, of every single store and every single window had a, had a thing that said, you know, looking, hiring, looking for help and places were like, there was everywhere, right? I'm sure it happened in Seattle too. Nobody could find people to actually work these jobs. And I was, and the, the media was getting a little nervous being like, oh, we need everyone to get back to work. And McConnell was like, we need to get people to come back to everyone was like, and I was, and I had this like kind of pride of like, there's still something to the human the human ethos out there that says like, we're worth more than this. Like we're, we're, we get it. We get the economic system and we're convinced in the West, at least that this is to bring in Winston Churchill, you know, social uh, capitalism and democracy is the worst system, except for all the others. Like we're convinced that like we saw what happened in communism didn't look so great and all right, but like we, so, we can do better than this. I'm worth more than this. I'm worth more than my job. And you hit the, I wasn't in that, that kitsch, you know, shop with you, but this, this total distaste for the, the self-affirmation in order to get, to get through, go back to work and be okay and just meditate like, oh, like our workers are unhappy. Let's put a yoga room there so like they can <laughs> yeah. get their five minutes of respite from this like. Make them robots. It's just yeah. the algorithm. Just add the yoga ball. Yeah. And, and, and it'll work. It'll yeah. Have- and and okay. I and I think I think and, and what what will be um, a tremendous challenge to bring it to the work of Brave Angels and your red blue partisan uh, hill you're trying to climb is um, the the conservative ethos has has been around for a really long time. I think people think America is a very liberal country. I think it's a very conservative, ethical, philosophical country in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And the, the the Protestant work ethic and this this long, this um, g- really groomed version of freedom that we're talking about that we take for granted so much um, that, you know, it, it really took hold in red areas that used to be blue areas. Like the, the blue dog Democrats and the union Democrats in Iowa don't exist anymore. But this was sort of a universal way of we find meaning through work and through choice and we have unions and we have all this kind of like labor strife. Um, that broke down incredibly, incredibly quickly. 
and we're in this situation where maybe maybe for better if we can have these genuine conversations it feels like a new kind of world is possible and i think you brought up this thing we have all these old habits old habits of economy old habits of psychology i think incredibly old habits of education especially at the youngest level that are preparing kids and you brought up with college like for a world that doesn't actually exist anymore um, I think another one of these little protests that's happening, I'm sure this was COVID related, but uh, college uh, enrollment is down like 6% the oh, last two yeah. years. That's so then, right. Yeah. And it might just be because like they're not allowed on campus. It's not as fun anymore with a mask or something. But so they're they're going less. But there's also maybe a little bit of a like, this is this is kind of a bullshit deal, right? Like you yeah, get a college yeah. degree and you're still unemployed. Screw this. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'm starting to very much believe that about college. Yeah. And you have kids. I don't know what like what you're projecting in I their futures. I yeah. that colleges get severely disrupted by the time they're 18. Yeah, I'm, right. I'm right. sitting here. Fingers we crossed. Can yeah. We can do this, guys. Like we can do this. Yeah. I, and, yeah. And these kinds of, so like again to like the 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 red blue conversation. I I've pointed this out a lot you know, on on different episodes and stuff, but the and I brought up this word hubris. I think if the left needs to do some internal work, if I never thought it that way, um they might get it by engaging in your kind of braver angels, like seeing the other side for, for maybe in its best light and then having a, a I never thought of it that way moment um, is for better or worse, the power to change the world and how people would find meaning have been designed and disrupted to use your word really aggressively by sort of Silicon Valley, very blue leaning Hollywood and the culture, these places that, that uh, charged very quickly ahead with these yes. changes to the world and the red areas, like this is my best, like really, really best defense of them. They played along really well for a really long time. They were promised in some way that this would work out. Like, let us do this. We're going to like outsource your jobs all over the world. Neoliberalism is going to work. They were, they were patient to a degree for a very long time. And their patience has run out very quickly. There's a lot of interesting psychologists that talk about this tipping point of complexity. You're talking about the world gets too, gets too complex. And then a figure like Trump always comes around who promises, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to plow through this thing really quickly. And then its simplicity lies on the other side. Make America it's Great so Again is... Yeah. yeah, it's very appealing. There's a freedom in simplicity to exactly. turn it around. You know, you're free from your own anxiety. Who doesn't want to be free from anxiety? And when people give the red states crap for not voting in their best interest, like, hey, we're trying to give you money. Why are you refusing it? It's like, no, you don't get it. They, they, I they don't. That's so demeaning. <laughs> so so demeaning and missing the point. It's like, no, you, you don't. You you don't understand. They don't. It's not that they don't want the handout because they they you know they want to do the work themselves or whatever. They want an assurance they don't want just money with what do they do with it you know, what's there to do what's there to find meaning for yeah. And, yeah where's the contract what's the deal like when people back out of a deal and don't acknowledge it and don't say anything and don't replace it with anything what right. do we expect everyone's just gonna sit back like yeah. it, it just it doesn't make sense but we're not talking about it we'll talk about anything else yeah and, and what did we want if we're talking so if we had the power of sort of the liberal elites and we we're like oh we like what did we want to give them what 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 was the contract like what what can it's almost this big question i know we have to wrap it up soon but it's almost this big question of sort of the these bigger what is progress where are we driving this towards we realize we broke a lot of things 
in sort of the familiarity and the, the structure of things. We can talk all day we want, which we have on this podcast about sort of the liberal emptiness and vapidness of let's do yoga and pretend we're all like fine at our jobs that we secretly hate. Um, but we certainly have this partisan divide where all of that rings probably really offensive in some ways oh, to, yeah. to the right. What I just said, they're being like, well, screw you. I can't, you know, I can't feed my kids and like we're all addicted to fentanyl in my little town and you know we can't say merry christmas anymore because we'll get called racist like who knows like like it doesn't ring well to them but but so so how do we fix it now not in sort of the conversational terms but in the like what what do we how do we redefine meaning and progress that feels like a contract that we could actually yeah sell yeah yeah well i think (laughs) I think the the big thing I want to call out is about the we, because mm. you know in in your speaking of this and in most of the speaking of this, there's a we, the liberal elites, there's them, and hang on, we the liberal elites do not get actually we don't actually get the right to build the society. That's not how it works. If we actually believe in the society, we have to know there's a deep fallacy in that. So that's that's the whole ultimate point of this is like. There's a we that we we're not seeing. That's maybe the ultimate blinding of of being so dang divided. Is like we're not we're not that divided. It's funny because I, I said earlier, you know, all my friends have college degrees, and then as a couple minutes later, I was like, wait, that friend doesn't. Neither does she. Wait, wait, wait. Why did I say that? <laughs> so so it's back to the us versus them, and uh, and so that's where I think this begins is 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 opening our eyes and realizing you know we have relatives we have friends yeah and i'm I'm saying the we as in the liberals fine like the liberals in cities you and i are both liberals in cities let's just own it yeah yeah with college degrees right sure but but america (laughs) is not just one group selling the other It, it can't be and that's the trap we're in um it's it's kind of back to what you said about the bernies and the trumps eventually realizing uh and and so but i don't mean it to sound kumbaya i mean it to sound revolutionary yes yeah. we're all in it together it's not kumbaya it's revolutionary you know <laughs> so so yeah so it's like have the conversations get to the edges of your familiarity and your comfort and ask the questions so that you can understand primarily that the person that you think is really different from you and has different problems that we actually all share these problems we share a lot of these core problems and until we see that we're going to keep fighting each other like idiots yeah i mean that's that's a pretty good summation at the end to see it yeah the 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 analogy of a revolution i'm i'm on board i'll sign up but it it also feels like and, and i might not even be against this a revolution needs to be pushing against some old order and if we could admit that the old order is not is not some racial group is not some even economic group although there's some tinkering to do with that question is certainly not some religious group is not some fear-based group but maybe ourselves of these old habits these old ideas and start to start to break them down uh, but a, but a revolution revolutions fail when they don't sort of define their sort of um, enemies, as it were, and then hopefully its goals, as it were. Um, but it, but it can't be a utopian revolution because we see what happens with all of them as well. But it does yeah. seem that that we can uh, w- define 
a, a something to push against in the revolution that is, that is collective enough. Yeah. Still kumbaya enough. Big challenge. It's a big yeah. And it might it's just not what be. what you or I think it is. Yeah. You know, we we're going to have to figure it out with a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of different people. So yeah, and, and every and everyone has their particular grievances, and it, it's very, it's you know, it it gets messy, and I suppose that's what politics and his best conception is is a, is a constant revolution against yeah, older be. ideas. Yeah, it has to be constant reinvention, constant self disruption. You know, and one one of the things that I so love about conservative values and conservative thought, and I've really learned to appreciate this is, I I love change. I love like disruption, innovation, you know, so classic sort of, I guess, stereotypically liberal, like let's change all the time. Mm -hmm. But, um, but, I, but I've also heard some really, really strong arguments. Um, Ron Heifetz, I believe, who, who came up with adaptive leadership, uh, that school of thought at Harvard, I think talked about this, that when it comes to changing things, actually one of the most important questions is not what we should change. It's what, we sh what should stay the same. It's yeah. what we should preserve. It's what's at the core conservatives are in my experience many folks who have talked to who are conservative are very good at thinking of it from that perspective and so i think ultimately change has to be a marriage between what should we change and what do we absolutely need to preserve because when we lose sight of what we need to preserve the the contract the whole thing holding our society together will start to dissolve without anyone noticing without anyone in power noticing once again, you know, we, we can't just look at, we can't look at the other side and say they have nothing to offer. Yeah. That's blind. That's yeah. Total. Just one last thing to add, because that was beautifully said. And where I want to perform the most important work, I would hope, because for better or worse, yes, we are using this we in this way of putting ourselves yeah. in a certain side of, of the aisle, which, which may or may not be true. Um, but I do think the conservative grievance is the loudest at the moment. Trump is a protest vote and it's very loud and it's a global one. Um, it, it, if there's an alchemy to perform, I love what you just said about honoring what we need to preserve and even admitting mistakes about we've erased that and we shouldn't have and we made a mistake and we don't we don't know what to do about it now we might, is powerful yeah and we might need you guys to help sort of reinvent that for us um but if there's an alchemy a deeper place to go of like if they're like well okay yeah like you changed this we need segregation back in the schools we're like oh no we can't really have that one and here's why and like <laughs> if they're like oh you know you, you changed it, it may be something that triggers some of them being like you changed, you know, how I could use the gender words and I just I hate it. Like we have to bring that back, like stop calling me a racist, whatever it is with with anything that comes out. So you avoid sort of descending back into like the usual political fight. If there's an alchemy to perform about and this is the hard part to do with sort of a psychological mind reading thing is get below the grievance. And, I, and I'm convinced you will always find a philosophically defensible sort of moral position, like I keep saying, of yes. your co-host who, who I think um, was pretty, was bringing out a, a, pro, um, a pro life stance that was pretty hard. I don't know her and I haven't gotten into it with her, but I will almost certainly find, I would guess, a defensible, same thing with your parents, maybe moral yeah. stance that, yeah. that worries about a world without consequence and then ultimately worries about a world without God and therefore we need to invent it. This is why she's a fan of Pascal, I think, and I'm not, but I love a lot of Pascal's work. All that kind of stuff is like you can have genuine conversations there that then by the time you go there and you come back to sort of the political of, okay, like what kind of policies do we want? They probably sound totally different because you can realize like you, we're going to get, you're going to retain the thing that you rightfully said we changed too quickly. 
um, but it doesn't need to look exactly like the old thing, like segregation or yes, exactly. you know, like outlawing exactly. same sex marriage. Like there's tons of ways to do it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's we my sort of little method. The, the moral of that story to me is we can't do it without each other, right? Yeah. If liberals rush ahead with, I don't know, here's what we're going to do with gender pronouns, here we're going to do whatever. And, and you know, you're a bad person if you don't, let's go. <laughs> it's like, yeah. okay, cool. That'll work in the big cities and nowhere else. So what are we, you know, it won't even work in the big cities really. Like no. who knows? But, but like, yeah. And then if conservatives have their way, you know, like on the other side, it's just a lot of issues. Yeah. <laughs> and so we just, yeah, the, the more, the longer we stay this divided, uh, the longer we stay stupid. Yeah. Just, yeah. And you can, you can apply what I just said exactly on the opposite. end, of course, too, of the, like, ask the philosophical questions of like, wait, why do you want to change everything so much? And that really goes more towards the sort of like, you know, uh, automaton and, and, and robotics that, that, that we're trying to be, it demands a more philosophical question of what do you want to change into? Like why, hey, you liberals want to change everything. Can we, what kind of policy sort of like, do you want to bring up that, that still allows you to get that nugget of the philosophical thing that's defensible about change and progress and whatever else and experimentation, but, but doesn't sort of throw away these things or inadvertently drive us all to that airport kitsch like shopping where we're pretending that we are happy and just we're need to like okay. look we yeah. laugh about it here's a meme yeah and that <laughs> and that the conservatives see right through it and they're right yes. <laughs> and, and absolutely right yeah absolutely well i i yeah i could talk to you all day we've been going for like an hour and 48 minutes i know you have to go i love your book i and i it, it's great for everyone, but particularly high schoolers that I work with in the National High School Ethics Bowl, like should read every piece of it. You should check that out. What's the really quick pitch for Braver Angels? Because everyone should check that out as well. Oh yeah, so Braver Angels is the largest uh, cross-partisan grassroots organization working to depolarize America. So the point at Braver Angels is, you know, bring the two sides together so that they can see that the each other is not monsters. Uh, we don't advocate for any kind of policy. We're not, you know, we're not like, oh, let's do this or that on politics. The only thing we're working on is what we call affective polarization, which is the polarization of how we feel about each other, which is tearing us apart because it's based on misperceptions and we got to fix them. It's awesome. And you have like chapters all over the country. I saw even like yeah. in Raleigh, like there's stuff locally. If you're listening to yep. this and you like this conversation, like you can find your local there's events. local alliances. Yeah. We have the Brave Angels podcast where we were built on workshops based on marriage therapy, believe it or not, uh, that have been proven successful uh, by a bunch of uh, academic researchers that really work um, to, to get us to look at the other side. I believe it. Um, politics is a marriage, a, a strenuous one. So. It's very strenuous. Yes. But divorce is not possible. At least that's what I like to believe. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you, Monica. This was so, so, so great. Yeah, thanks, Jay. I think this made me smarter, and I always appreciate that. Oh, well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Next week is my conversation with Ian Bogost, all about object-oriented ontology. It's an incredibly fascinating philosophical stance, which challenges the long-held philosophical assumption that there are two substances in the world, mind and nature, or consciousness and all of its contents, or a world and its perception. It's kind of blowing my mind lately, and hopefully it'll grab you too. It has wonderful implications about art and morality, and surprisingly connects a ton with what Monica and I just teased apart about conversations. Okay, I don't have a final closing comment about the situation in the world at the moment, other than hoping that by the time I record another introduction, we'll have peace in Ukraine. <laughs>